so much to know how to make this thing go. Does anybody know where the on switch is? You're the man. Thank you. Well, good morning and uh, thanks for having us back. My name is Jerry. This is my lovely wife, Karen, and it's been our privilege over the last year or two to be here several times, though I think it's been a, about a year since we were last here and good, good, good to be with you again. I need to start this way. I'm a man of fairly modest ability, and I've been asked not only to preach, but also to run my own PowerPoint, which I have actually never done before. It takes a lot of people to support me in the work that I do, so I hope it doesn't become a a distraction, but let's see. Oop. Look at that. I can do two things at once. Walking and chewing gum at the same time is a challenge for me, so it'll be interesting to see how this goes. It's my privilege to um, speak to you from God's Word, Luke chapter 15. Uh, Sometimes the question gets asked, what's your favorite verse or chapter or section of the Bible? Honestly, I don't like the question because I think... It takes us in an unhelpful direction, though there are passages of Scripture that warm our hearts and enliven our minds for lots of different reasons and are therefore special to us. To zero in on one passage against all the rest is kind of a mistake. It's the whole counsel of God that we need. But if I were asked um, what I think is one of the most important chapters in Scripture, it would be from Luke's Gospel, chapter 15 commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son, which in my opinion right out of the gate misleads us because while it is about a prodigal or wayward son, there are actually two sons in this story and it's the second one I want to spend most of my time with you on this morning and I'll just plunge right in. Uh, I wish I actually had a couple, two or three weeks to do this, so I'm going to sort of summarize Luke 15 before we get to our primary text. Luke 15 is Jesus' response to grumbling religious leaders who were indignant over his care for and association with people far from God. They were just furious with him for his familiarity with sinners. But the question really is, in Luke 15, who? Who is it that's far from God? And of course, the answer is all of us. All of us are born into a state of sin, as we were reminded uh, in our communion experience, and have need of God's grace and and mercy. It, It is the prodigal son for whom the chapter is often named, but there's far more going on here, and that's what I want to explore with you this morning. Luke 15 is Jesus' rebuke to people who, in spite of their familiarity with Scripture, had forgotten that you and I have never looked into the eyes of another human being who does not matter to God. I've already messed it up here. Um, That's a good line. You and I have never looked into the eyes of another human being who does not matter to God. And I think sitting in church, we like the sound of that. That sounds biblical. That sounds right. Until we think of someone we dislike or distrust or despise. 
And when we think about a person in that category for us, we start to grumble. And it's the grumbling that provokes Jesus to respond. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And that little phrase, eats with them, is a signifier of the kind of hospitality and connection and friendship that um, is more significant than just a, hey, how's it going? There, Jesus sat down and shared a meal with people who were clearly far from God. And so he told them the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And you know the story. The shepherd leaves the 99 to rescue the one lost lamb. The woman scours her house, turns it upside down to find the missing coin. And the father longs and looks for his wayward son until finally he returns. And in each and every instance, there's a huge celebration, a party that ensues. And we're told in the chapter that heaven itself celebrates when even one returns to the embrace of the father. Every line, every word, every turn of the story is full of meaning, which is why Tim Keller describes Luke 15 as that place in the New Testament that is like an alpine lake where the water is so clear you can see all the way to the bottom. And what we see is the gospel in Luke 15, not religion, not moralism, not a self-improvement strategy. We see the clearest explanation of what's wrong with not just some of us, but all of us in this story, and how we can be transformed by the grace of God. That's the reason why I would um, say Luke 15 is among the, the most significant chapters in, in all of the Bible, certainly the New Testament. So, as I've already hinted at, most people who study Luke 15 focus on the younger son, the bad boy, and his repentant return to the father's open-armed forgiveness. And it's a glorious story. It's a wonderful story that gives all who yearn for the return of a wayward loved one hope. There isn't anybody who doesn't have somebody in their extended family or circle of relationship who, does, who isn't praying for somebody who's far from clearly, obviously, openly far from God who needs to experience the gift of grace. It's the story of a God who is in fact so prodigal that in his grace he redeems his son so prodigal in his son. One of the problems with the way we name the chapter is prodigal doesn't actually mean wayward. It means lavish. It means extravagant. It means over the top. So the prodigal son was just over the top, far from God. And it's God himself who is over the top gracious to those who are far from him. That's why Tim Keller wrote a book on Luke chapter 15 that's called The Prodigal God. It's not the prodigal son, it's the prodigal God who had grace to extend to two different sons, two categories of people, two different groups of folk. This is a story about prodigal grace for all people far from God, which brings us to the fact that there's more than one son in the story. It turns out the younger brother piece is just the prequel to the real conflict 
that centers on the other brother, the elder brother. Jesus wants us to learn from both brothers, but he especially wants us, as he wanted the Pharisees and the scribes, to embrace a much bigger and much clearer understanding of what it means to be alienated from God. How extensive our alienation from God actually is. We, we learn in Luke 15 that waywardness is not the only way to be estranged from God. Here's the big idea this morning. Even our goodness can come between us and God as well. So here's what we see in Luke 15. The younger son, face down in a pigsty, clearly lost, obviously lost. But the elder son is also lost, equally lost, and in a way that is at once illuminating and insidious, because Jesus shows us here that we can run, we can run from God by breaking the rules, and we can run from God by keeping them. Do you know that? Do you understand that? In the first instance, we say, God doesn't own me. I'm in charge of my life. I'm the captain of my fate. I'm the boss of my life. I'm free to live as I like. But in the second way, we say, God owes me. And there's something deep and sinister and black and ugly about this reality that we need to face. Because there it is. Jesus invites the Pharisees and us to reflect on this. For all his faithfulness and obedience, his outward compliance with the rules, if you like, the elder brother is filled with contempt for his younger brother. Ungratefulness toward his father, resentfulness of both, and in possession of a thinly, very thinly veiled rage. Attitudes and behaviors every bit as hostile to God and his kind of life as anything we see in the behavior of the younger brother. So let's look more closely at and learn from the parable of the elder brother. Luke 15, 25. Meanwhile, following the joyful return of the wayward, now repentant younger brother, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your younger brother has returned, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him safe, back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. Again, Jesus sat down at the table to eat with sinners. This self-righteous elder brother won't even go in the door to the place where the party is happening, where the food is being served, where hospitality is happening. So once again, his father has to go out. His father went out. This infinitely patient, loving, gracious father goes out. Earlier to his prodigal, wayward um, son who squandered half the family inheritance and loose living and all the rest of that. He had to go out to find that one, and he now has to go out again to the other brother, to the other wayward brother, and plead with him. But the elder son answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate my friends. 
But when this son of yours, and you need, you need to say that phrase with a sneer in your voice, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He's not a happy guy, this elder brother. He's just full of rage and resentment. But the father said, My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now is found. And just as the angels in heaven have celebrated his homecoming, we must do the same. We will do the same. We are doing the same thing. And with those words, right there on the screen, those words, this is how Luke 15 ends. Around the question of how the elder brother will respond to the challenging words of this loving, gracious father. And we don't know exactly, because the question was being asked of the scribes and the Pharisees, and we don't know what they did with Luke chapter 15. It's an open-ended parable that's been, that served millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people for over two millennia, leaving them with the question, how am I alienated from God? Not am I, but how am I? In which way? In what, what kind of alienation from God have I embraced? This is how Luke 15 ends, and this is the parable of the elder brother. And the first thing we learn from this part of the story is there's more than one way to be alienated from God. Jesus, a master storyteller, presses the point of lostness. That's at the heart of the whole chapter. Lost like a lamb that's followed its appetite over a cliff. Lost like a coin and a couch. Lost like a son who abandons family for freedom. Which all makes perfect sense to us. Completely logical. But then we come to the unexpected category, lost like a person consumed with a sense of entitlement. Self-righteous entitlement. The younger brother's lostness led him to the pigsty of self-indulgence, but the elder brother's lostness led him to the pigsty of self-pity. To pouting and brooding over his grievances to the point that he refuses to enter into his father's joy on what was clearly, obviously, the happiest day of this father's life. At least it should have been. The robe, the ring, the fattened calf, all summoned for the son who has come home are signals that this was the day the father feared would never come. That he'd never experienced this moment of reunion with his younger wayward son. But providence and grace have provided it, and it's all joy. It's all joy until he encounters his other son. Hope deferred. Hope deferred, we're told, in the Bible makes the heart sick. And any parent who has even for a moment lost a child can tell you about the sheer panic, the heart sickness, the terror, followed by the amazing relief and joy of reunion. When that child is found. The day the son who was lost forever is found is the greatest of days for this heartsick father. So how self-absorbed would one have to be to squelch the father's joy and ask in such a moment, do we have to waste a calf 
the best calf on this idiot son of yours? Why not Papa Murphy's and Coke? Wouldn't that be good enough? The elder brother is lost in self-pity just as surely as the younger brother was lost in self-indulgence. And we have to see that. Because this is how many religious church attending people live. Elder brothers are people who are more committed to their sense of justice than to God's offer of grace. And I want to talk with you about that for a minute, because some of us really struggle with this. I know I have and do. This is a key to the parable. If you try to live by the math of pure justice, as opposed to the beauty of what I'll call the beauty of grace, you'll be perpetually frustrated by the unfairness of life. You'll be bitter. You'll be angry. You'll be resentful. You'll be full of self-pity. If you try to live by the math of justice as opposed to the beauty of grace, you'll be perpetually frustrated by the unfairness of life. And it must be asked, it must be asked, this is a hard question, friends, do you really want to live by the math of justice? No matter how good you may have by some kindness and mercy been for however long you've lived, do you really want to live by the math of justice? Because the truth is, even in your saner moments, in your saner moments, you know you don't live up to your own standards, much less God's. However better you may outwardly be than a thousand younger brothers, you know you don't live up to your own expectations, much less God's standard. If it's really going to be about bean-counting, nitpicking justice, we are all in very deep weeds. Really serious trouble. Still, people struggle with Luke 15 because they can only see what the elder brother saw. This son of yours. This son of yours. Not, not the, the, that brother of mine. This son of yours. Has squandered all our stuff. So, for those of you who struggle like I do with the justice piece, think about it for a moment. There's not one word of approval for the younger brother's bad behavior in this story. None at all. In fact, the story tells in the plainest of ways what a train wreck of his life he had made, what a hash he had made of his family relationship, how utterly estranged he was from everybody, God, family, friends, even himself. He's sitting literally in a pigsty wondering, what have I done and where shall I turn now? There's no, there's no denial that the elder brother has a better record or that what the younger brother did was selfish. He was a bad boy. He was. But everyone, including him, there's a big one, self-awareness. Everyone, including the younger brother, knew he was a bad boy. It was the key to his salvation. Only the elder brother, only the elder brother was blind to his sense of entitlement and self-pity which put him in the greater jeopardy. And it's the reason why Jesus is responding to the grumbling of really good religious people, law-keeping, rule-keeping religious people. This is what Jesus wants the Pharisees to see. This is Jesus' word to people like us. This is Jesus' parable for people like you and me. For all their differences, both sons are lost. Both are alienated from the father. The father has to go out to both of them. 
beckoning each to come home. Both were more interested in the father's things than in the father himself. But the shocker of the story is it's the younger brother who comes to his senses, who finally gets it. And have you noticed, the elder brother half of the story never resolves. I said that a moment ago. It doesn't come to a point of resolution. Jesus deliberately crafts an open-ended story, begging the question, calling his listeners to decide where they stand in relation to the Father, whether or not they have the courage to admit their own state of alienation. Jesus says there are two ways to be lost, two ways to be estranged from the Father. You can chart your own path, you can go your own way, but you can also stay at home and nurse a sense of self-righteous self-justification and be equally, or maybe in some ways even more, alienated from God. So beware, my faithful church-attending brothers and sisters, beware. For all their differences, both sons were all about themselves, but only one had the humility to, to recognize it. There are two ways to sin against the Father, but they both boil down to the problem of self-justification. The Bible says we can either look to Jesus to be our Savior and Lord, trusting Him to justify us, or we can look to something else to justify our life. And it can be absolutely anything. The list is endless. Success, status, connections, accomplishments, religion, good behavior, a good record. This is what it means to be a sinner, a human being estranged from God. It ain't just cussing and stealing and doing bad stuff. It's trusting yourself and not Jesus to certify your significance. Rocky told Adrian he would only know he wasn't a bum if he went the distance with the champ. Self-justification. Madonna famously stated in a Vanity Fair article that she only felt important when she was performing in front of a large crowd. Self-justification. Chrissy Everett, the great female tennis star, admitted in a Sports Illustrated interview years ago that she was driven to excel because she said, and I quote, winning made me feel pretty, that I mattered, and I could go on and on and on. And that's just from the arts, that's just from movies. The human passion to self-justify. Do you see, everyone looks to something to validate his or her life. I'm a great parent. I'm a faithful spouse. I'm a loyal friend. I'm a hard worker. I achieved this. I achieved that. We must find validation. It's, it's built into, the, into our souls. It's deeper than our DNA, in fact. It's built into our very souls. We, might, we yearn to be justified, validated. But we can only find it either in ourselves or in another. And we find it much more attractive to find it in ourselves. That's, our, that's what sin is, really. We must find validation either in ourselves or in Jesus Christ. This is what separates Christianity from every other alternative. 
Every other religion is an invitation to self-validation, to merit validation. Obey these rules. Do this ritual. Deny your desires. Follow this path to enlightenment. Only Christianity invites us to receive our justification, to receive, not achieve, receive our justification from the one who freely offers it in his own death, burial, and resurrection, our Lord Jesus Christ. There are two ways to justify yourself. One way is by breaking the rules through self-assertion, self-indulgence, self-presentation, and it's a dead end every time. But the other way is by keeping the rules rules through self-achievement, but that too is equally a dead end and a very deceptive one because it looks so good. It looks so honorable. Yet it's still a self-salvation project. And to bend and twist and manipulate a line from Shakespeare, a self-salvation plan by any other name, is still a self-salvation plan. And there's the problem. There is the problem. And what I hope you see more clearly at this point is this. The younger brother approach has this kind of odd advantage of being more easily discerned as a false way. This is more outwardly obvious. While the elder brother approach has this power to deceive because it looks so good. I mean, if you're face down in a pigsty, drunk as a sailor, broke as a pauper, infected with an STD, and afflicted with an addiction, hello, you're lost. (laughs) You are completely lost. But... Here's where it gets complicated. If you've been a good boy or a good girl and yet are filled with the expectation that God owes you a good life in exchange for your goodness, you are on a very slippery slope. And a very hard thing for us sometimes to even think about, much less discern. We know, we know what younger brother lostness looks like. So let's think for a few minutes about what, what does elder brother lostness look like, and, it, and it, comes, it comes right out of the text. What are the symptoms, the signs of elder brother lostness? And I think a, a simple question reveals why elder brother lostness is so tricky. Where do elder brothers hang out? I'll give you a little clue. Where do elder brothers congregate? The church. They, they come right here. They are here in church. They are you and me, praying, singing, giving, listening to a sermon, for heaven's sake. They are here. We are him. In which case, it's much harder and more painful to diagnose the elder brother problem. So we need diagnostic help. We need some help. And I want to sketch out four signs of the condition revealed in Luke 15. The first is anger. Elder brothers look good because they hang out in the right places and are generally well-behaved. But just beneath the surface, they are angry. The older brother became angry, refusing to celebrate his brother's homecoming. He says to his father, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed you. Do you recognize that? Do you see that as the self-talk, the fuel on which the elder brother heart runs? The self-justifying, often self-pitying, self-absorbed nature of the anger. 
I see it. I see this in me. This is the symptom that most troubles me personally. I don't throw things or rage on people generally, but I've done some time feeling angry and sad. Sad about things, but even more mad about them. It's not necessarily bad to feel sad about the injustice of life, but when it turns to anger, it becomes something toxic. It begins to eat away at your soul. It begins to drive you further and further and further away from the God who is all about grace and mercifully not about, um, you know, keeping the list, moral perfection of which none of us, even in our best of times, is capable of. Here's how it works. Elder brothers believe that if they live a good life, they should get a good life. So when their life doesn't go well, they get mad. And guess what? Life never goes as well as you think it should. And if that hasn't become true for you yet, just wait a little longer. You you will run into this reality. Sometimes it's flat-out disastrous. Really bad things happen to really good people. So if you think God owes you a good life because you've been good and your life doesn't go well, who do you get mad at? You get mad at God. Now, you're too good to admit that. But that's who you're mad at. And do you see, that's where it's so insidious. I know. I'm a good boy. I don't, I don't get mad at God. That would be wrong. But I'm fired up at God. I'm upset with God. I'm irritated with God. I'm annoyed that my goodness hasn't produced all the goodness that I think I deserve. All these years I've been faithful, worked hard, done the right thing, and what do I get? You've never even given me a stinking goat, (laughs) says the elder brother. Elder brothers are mad at God, but they're also mad at themselves because if you live by the math of justice versus the beauty of grace... If you believe that everyone should get what they deserve, oh my gosh. If you believe that everyone should get what they deserve, oh my. And you've got an honest bone in your body, you know you haven't lived up to even your own standards. So when your life goes bad, you get mad at yourself, and so we swing miserably back and forth between the poles of I hate thee and I hate me. just angry at everything and everyone which is the very definition of our second piece in the diagnostic joy joylessness joylessness or what might be called a life of duty without beauty again the elder brother gives it away when he says all these years i've been slaving for you such such masterful storytelling. The younger son returns home begging to be a slave, but is reinstated as a son. The elder brother, who has all the rights and privileges of the firstborn male child, and if you know anything of the cultural realities of the context of this story, the most privileged of positions is ends up a slave to his anger and his joylessness. You see that? It's all duty and no beauty for him. And here's a duty versus beauty illustration. There are lots of ways to illustrate this, but I'll just pick this one. If you went to college, you may have taken music appreciation. 
And unless music was your major, you did this to tick the box and graduate. Um, you listened to Mozart, in other words, to get a grade, to get a job, to get a diploma, and to make money. It's all, it was all duty, music appreciation. But of course, many people discover over time on their own that they actually love Mozart. They love Mozart's music simply for its beauty, spending lots of money on CDs or whatever medium you're buying these days. So one, one person listens to Mozart to make money. The other makes money to listen to Mozart. Duty versus beauty. And it just illustrates this point. Elder brothers obey God on the premise that he's useful. That he will do their bidding. That he will be there for them in the way that they think he should. Duty leads to reward. But gospel-liberated Christians obey God because they find Him beautiful, because they simply, truly find Him beautiful. They are overwhelmed by His beauty and the beauty of grace. He is their joy. The beauty of grace leads to worship and to love and to service, gratefulness and joy just sort of spilling over. So people who listen to Mozart for the beauty of the music aren't trying to appear cultured and sophisticated. They just love the music. Elder brothers obey God not because they find him beautiful, but because they expect something for their effort. They expect compensation, frankly. And it leads to joyless duty. Elder brothers look at their life and say, I've been faithful and obedient, and what have I gotten for all my trouble? Gospel-believing Christians look at Jesus and wonder at the faithful obedience that led to a cross. We've sung about it. We've taken communion about it. Elder brothers are looking for reward. Gospel-believing Christians are looking for ways to say thank you to the Father who welcomed them home. Life is a grind. For the angry, joyless, duty-driven person, is it not? How do such people feel good about their life? How do they live with themselves? They justify themselves by looking down on those who aren't as well-behaved as they are. This is where it gets really, really dark. Competitive comparison is the main way elder brothers achieve a sense of their own significance, and we call this superiority, the third piece of our diagnostic. Again, the the phrase, say it with a sneer, this son of yours, it just drips with superiority, doesn't it? He's wasted our money, he's ruined our name, this wasteful, womanizing, uh, substance-abusing son of yours. You can just hear, you can hear the echo of Adam, Genesis chapter 3, saying to God, this woman you gave me. It's, it's there. It's our go-to line to point the finger at somebody else, to shift the blame here or there or elsewhere. Here's all I really have time to say about this. If you connect your significance to your performance above God's grace, if you justify your life by being a hard worker, I'm not saying you shouldn't be a hard worker, but if you justify your life, if you know you're not a bum because you work so hard, which is to say harder than almost everybody else, 
then you will look down your nose and feel superior to people you perceive to be lazy. And I'm going to work this, so just gird up your loins, friends. If you root your value in being successful more than being God's valued child, then you have to look down on people you see as failures. If you find validation in your ethnic identity, you'll feel superior to people of other races. If you feel justified in your prosperity, you will feel contempt for the poor. Can you see and feel this in yourself? And can you see why younger brother types will stay away from the church in droves if they sense it's filled with elder brother superiority? That's one to ponder for a bit, isn't it? Here's how you tell whether you're an elder brother. When you look at people of a different race or a different class of faith, class or faith, a different color, orientation, or network, Worth When you look at people with different hurts, hang-ups, and habits than you have, <laughs> and you feel superior to, to them, that, that's the heart of an elder brother. That's the manifestation of the kind of self-justification that we're experts at. And what it both produces and reveals is a deep spiritual insecurity. There's the fourth piece of the diagnostic, a profound spiritual insecurity. The elder brother lets his slip show when he says, you never threw me a party, failing to recognize his whole life had been a party. As long as you're trying to make God your debtor through your goodness, you'll never be sure you've been good enough. Every time something goes wrong in your life, you'll wonder if it's punishment. Have you tortured yourself that way? You can't be sure you've repented deeply enough, so you beat yourself up over every self-described failing. There will be a lack of intimacy with God in prayer, because if it's all about scorekeeping, anxiety will kill, destroy, obliterate every impulse to worship, love, and gratitude. It will. It'll just kill it. Why, why is that? Well, because you worship and adore the one who knows you to the core, yet loves you to the skies. You do not worship and adore the scorekeeper in the sky. You do not. You're terrified of him. And sometimes him is yourself. I don't know. Uh, this is, there's a depth and richness and concentration in the words I'm going to show you on the screen here. And if you want this... Just send me an email and I'll send it to you. It's more than you can probably write down in the time that remains. But Richard Lovelace writes, People who are not sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. There, there it is. There's the list. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own insecurity and discharge their suppressed anger. Boom. Those are the signs of elder brother lostness, and we, we, must, we must take inventory. We must wrestle a little bit with this. We must face it in the best way that we can. Asking God's help, and then we have to ask, what's the solution? And I just first need to say, di diagnostic lists like this are only helpful, are 
only helpful for self-analysis. Yeah? None of us has the right or the ability to diagnose this condition in another person. As others have wisely pointed out, you and I are radically underqualified to perform the work of the Holy Spirit. Radically underqualified. Now, we may be invited to help people. We all need help with our blind spots. And if someone trusts you, if, if you've come to the place where you can trust another person enough to help you with that, that's a, that's a gift. That's the beauty of real friendship. Um, so we may be invited to help, but don't seek this kind of work. Do not seek this kind of work. Concentrate on self-analysis and let God sort out the rest. That said, there are people in every church who really are, who really are lost, who in spite of hearing the gospel are trying to earn their way to heaven by putting God in their debt, by being good, good enough, good often enough. And what I've come to understand is if we're faithful to lift up the gospel, to make it as clear as we can with the help of the Holy Spirit, pray for and love one another week by week over time, both Pharisees and prodigals will come to their senses and finally run to the Father. But there are also many people who know and believe the gospel, who truly are Christians, but who by temperament and experience and habit fall back into elder brother patterns, which is why it is so important for us to understand repentance isn't something you do once at the end of a sermon at an altar 50 years ago. Repentance is a way of life. If you understand anything at all about what I'm saying here today, you know repentance is a way of life. And it's the reason why after nearly four decades of preaching and Christ following, I'm more convinced than ever that we all need the gospel today as much as ever. Now more than ever. Only the gospel can heal the pride and fear that drive all our self-salvation plans. Only the gospel. Whether you seek to justify your life by doing your own thing or by impressing God with your goodness, you are, we are all driven by pride or fear. Those are the great drivers of our life. Pride that I'm in control or fear that I'm not. Pride that I'm good enough or fear that I'm not. And the only cure is the gospel. The, for only the gospel tells us that we are so messed up that God himself had to die for us. Had to. But only the gospel tells us that we are so loved by God himself that he was glad to do so. So so full of that inward bent in on ourselves that God had to die for us, so loved by him that he did it gladly. And do you see how that is the only way to obliterate the problems of pride and fear in your life and mine? It may help to think of it this way. The gospel is the hammer of truth and the gentleness of grace without which we cannot be saved. And I mean saved in the, in the most expansive way possible. The hammer of truth that crushes our pride and the gentleness of grace, grace that soothes our fear. It's, it's right in the parable. Jesus paints the clearest possible picture of younger brother lostness and the futility of that self-salvation plan 
follow your passions and live for yourself and you'll die in a pigsty. But then he paints the clearest possible picture of elder brother lostness, the more precarious of the plans because you can cut yourself off from God by making God your debtor to your own goodness. The hammer of truth. But can you also see the gentleness of grace? It's revealed. It's revealed kind of subtly, but it's, it's, it's really actually quite obvious. It's revealed in the tender way Jesus approaches the problem of our addiction to all of our self-salvation plans. I mean, Luke 15 itself is, is the offer of grace <laughs> to both the son in the pigsty and the son full of self-pity. He unconditionally welcomes repentant younger brothers into the family, paying their debt and welcoming them home. But he also doesn't berate, belittle, or pound on the Pharisees. He pleads with them. He tells them a story that has their name written into it if they can only have the eyes and the humility to see it. He pleads with them through the Father's voice, My son, my son, everything I have is yours. It's all yours. With patient love, Jesus urges elder brothers to lay the burden of their self-salvation plan down. Come to the family feast. He urges them to abandon pride and fear, to repent and come to the Father's table, a foreshadowing of the moment on the cross when Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Based on my sacrifice, they are lost as sheep, lost as a coin in a couch, lost as these two wayward sons. Father, forgive them. Not let them in because they are so good. When you see, when you really see how lost you are and in what way, it will smother your pride. And when you see, really see how loved you are, it will banish your fear and you can, you can run to the Father's arms. You can come home. I, I don't know for sure. But maybe the oldest game in all the world is the one we call hide-and-seek. Where the object, after a time of running and hiding, is to get safely home. Luke 15 is God's call to come home to everyone, everyone, everywhere. His promise that it is safe to come home. Whoever will may come, if you will but repent and receive his pardon. And before I I offer a closing prayer let's just not fail friends to do exactly what an elder brother would do tick off the church attendance box and go have lunch by all means have lunch today but don't tick off the box let's not fail to reflect and respond what is God saying what is God saying to you this morning with which of the two sons do you identify There it is. Do you need to repent of selfishness or superiority? Well, with the brother who said both, I'll say yes to both. Waywardness or joylessness? Yep. Are you a freedom-seeking rule-breaker or are you an entitled rule-keeper? I've been both. I am both. Do you need to face the fact that the anger in your heart is directed toward God because your life hasn't turned out exactly the way you thought you'd earned for it to be? There's a lot to respond to here. 
<laughs> and whatever, whatever has led you away from the Father, it is he who calls us to come home. And y'all are old enough to know this, the ancient cry, the shout that is offered at the end of hide-and-seek is, Ollie, say it with me, Ollie, Ollie, oxen-free. I do not have the vaguest idea. I have no idea what Ollie, I mean, broadly, yes, but Ollie, Ollie, oxen-free, what a bizarre phrase. No idea how to translate that, but I think it means, I think it means, you know it means, it is safe to come home. Let's bow for prayer. In, in a way, Father, it feels disrespectful to say it this way, but it just rings true to me. You are the... Ma- It's not enough to say that you are the master storyteller. You are so much more. But this is the most masterful of stories in its power to illuminate and to reveal and to expose and to unearth and to dredge up from the dark, dark bottoms of our hearts and minds and lives the things that need to see the light of day. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit would be as gracious to us as those things are drawn out and drawn up and exposed to the light as this father was to his wayward son and his self-pitying brother. Oh, how our souls need it. Oh, how we need to run home to the Father. And I pray that each of us in his or her own way would do precisely that as we've submitted and surrendered ourselves to this masterful story, the Word of God, Luke 15, the peril, parable of the prodigal God, the over-the-top, unbelievably lavish, full-of-grace God. We love you, we renew our joy in you, and we give you thanks this morning in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Shelter like no